So in our gospel lesson, Jesus is continuing the Sermon on the Mount, and he has moved on to a lesson about the law and what is permissible under the law. He has said that he had not come to abolish or to do away with the law, but rather to fulfill the law. Jesus says essentially that not only does the law matter, but he's actually going to increase the requirements of it. The law is really a bare minimum of faithfulness to God and human decency. But there's more to actually intensify it. And in doing so, Jesus changes the focus from what is the least that I need to do or what can I get away with to how do I actually treat another person to the human being on the other side. Jesus goes through four specific Mosaic laws, laws from the commandments of Moses. You have heard it said, Jesus says, and quoting Deuteronomy, that you shall not murder, that you shall not commit adultery, that you shall not swear falsely. Jesus says with regards to murder that not only should you not murder, but you really shouldn't even think about it or let yourself get to that point in your anger that you might want to. Don't let your disagreements with another person get you to that point. Don't insult each other, but seek reconciliation. Come to terms out of court. All of these steps to take if you have a disagreement, try to figure it out before it escalates to the point where you might want to kill someone. Can you imagine, though, if we took that seriously? If we never called one another foolish or hurled insults, but instead sought understanding and kindness? If before we came to give our offerings or before we came to the table, we genuinely sought reconciliation? In our communion liturgy, when we share the peace of Christ with one another, those are supposed to be signs of reconciliation. Can you imagine if in worship we looked around the room, saw the people we weren't getting along with right now, because sometimes we don't all get along, right? And you actually went over to that person and made things right again. What if it was somebody out in the community or farther away and you had to actually just leave and go and make things right and then come back? to worship properly? What if we had to go out and actually do that hard, hard work? What if we didn't even need civil court because we had the ability to fix everything between us instead of having to go to a judge? I'm sorry, Rossi. We need judges. But what if we didn't, though? What if we lived in the kind of world where we could settle things on our own between each person? arbitration, or with mediation even, right? That's still an option there. You've heard it said, Jesus says, continuing, that you shall not commit adultery. Jesus again reminds us that there's a long path full of many other choices before we actually get to that point, or hotel room in this case. There are a lot of yeses that were said along the way. So he starts with, don't even look at a woman with lust. And yes, this is all addressed to men here. 
To the point that if your wandering eye seems to be the problem, Jesus says, you should cut it out. What if we took that really seriously? Instead of critiquing women on how we dress or behave, we told men to cut their eyes out instead. Divorce, he says. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Because in Moses' law, there were certificates and remarriage. And basically, if a man had divorced his wife, he gave her a certificate of divorce, and she could then go on and get married again. But Moses' law then said, if she got divorced again and had the certificate of divorce, that she should not go back and her first husband should not marry her all over again. Jesus says, don't even mess with that business. Unless there's a lack of faithfulness involved, He says, don't even get divorced in the first place. Not only just don't worry about remarrying your first spouse all over again, but don't get divorced. Because if you get divorced and then remarried again, that is also considered adultery or a lack of faithfulness. We'll come back to this because I know you were probably getting a little bit nervous when Kevin was reading those words. Jesus continues, even instead of swearing by God or making that kind of pledge or oath or vow by heaven, Jesus says, don't even do that because we're not actually in charge of anything in the first place. You can't change the color of hair on your head. This was before Clairol and just for men. We're not in charge of these things. So instead of making a grand promise, just say yes or no. Let your answer be simple and clear. It boils down here not so much to the law in particular, not to the actual rule, not to what we have to do, but to people, to reconciliation, to avoiding harm, to caring for relationships, to building and maintaining peace. An ethic for understanding rules, are they guidelines to check off or are they methods of honoring the lives of other people? An ethic for applying scripture here, too, in ways that help and heal rather than to cause more harm and separation from God and community. And it's unfortunate because sometimes it's parts of this very passage that have been used to cause harm. So let's talk about divorce again, because you're probably wondering. It's feeling a little warm in here, isn't it? Raise your hand if you or someone you know and love is divorced. Also the same people who own Bibles, right? We don't spend nearly as much time debating these particular teachings in the church as we do about other matters concerning marriage and sexuality. But in fact, if we were to take these teachings literally, life would be rather different for quite a few of us. Jesus doesn't actually have a single thing to say about same-sex marriages or relationships, but he does have this lesson about divorce. And is that what the UMC is so hotly debating right now? In part, no, because it touches too many of us. All of us are caught up in these words. And we know the harm done by these words. We know because we have stories of people who couldn't join a church because they were divorced or remarried or take communion. 
stories of churches that were not welcoming, stories of people feeling judged and uncomfortable because their marriages had ended, a shame passed on to children when their households and families are labeled as broken. And yes, there are other lessons here about protecting women in Jesus' day so that a man could not casually leave a woman without protection and property and status. This is a passage too often quoted by male ministers to female church members, urging them to stay in marriages, even when physically and emotionally abused by their husbands. And yes, I'm sure this passage has been used the other way to also encourage men to stay in marriages with women who abuse them. But Jesus only mentions sexual infidelity as a reason for divorce even though there are many, many ways to cause harm within a marriage, within relationships. We struggle especially with divorce passages. It makes sense, of course, to affirm that ending a marriage should not be taken lightly. But what if it's not just unfaithfulness? What if it's physical or emotional abuse or less dramatic? What if it really comes down to differences that are too great? Our lived experiences teach us to be careful. Experience teaches us the danger of how scripture can be used and how a plain meaning can cause more harm than help. Experience is a part of the quadrilateral, a way that John Wesley understood matters of theology. He didn't name it a quadrilateral, but it was a four-pronged approach to scripture and tradition and reason and experience. And the four illuminate each other. Tradition and reasoning and experience are all things that we bring to scripture when we sit down, when we read our Bibles. Experience is both our individual experience and our collective experiences as community. Our experience shapes how we understand scripture. If we read the Bible from a place of privilege and peace, The Bible is often a source of comfort, of healing, of guidance, and when you're younger, frankly, sometimes of boredom. From that vantage point, even the most troubling parts of the Bible, parts about war and violence and slavery, do not sound terribly personal. From a position of comfort, we might say that passages about slavery are better understood as as lessons of servanthood, for serving Christ and others by our own free will. We might say that biblical slavery was not as harsh as American slavery, or that for the Apostle Paul, he couldn't imagine the world any other way. We wouldn't, of course, defend American slavery because our Christian tradition, our national experience, our history have informed us differently. But how do these passages sound when we consider the long-lasting impact of slavery on our nation? How might these passages have sounded to enslaved persons in the American South? And how do these passages sound during Black History Month? How do these passages sound if our own ancestors were enslaved? From Ephesians chapter 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling in singleness of heart as you obey Christ, 
not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, render service with enthusiasm. And from the second chapter of 1 Peter, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And from the 21st chapter of Exodus, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. For missionaries during slave trading times, for southern preachers who were not in favor of abolishing slavery. These words became powerful tools to defend the practice and institution of slavery as a God-ordained ordering of society. In his sermon last Sunday, Lacey Hughes spoke of the scriptural basis for those who worked against the civil rights movement, of Christians who so clearly believed they were upholding God's will and resisting equality for all people. For the same reasons, upholding slavery seemed to be the good and faithful thing to do. Rachel Held Evans reminds us that even freedmen like Frederick Douglass and Henry Highland Garnet debated the wisdom of distributing scripture among people whose bondage was often justified with citations of scripture. But scripture isn't only replete with images that could be used to support enslavement. There are powerful passages of freedom, liberation, and visions of new world orders. In fact, the whole story of the Exodus is a story of liberation from slavery, of a people finding their way to freedom, a history that turns into the backdrop of Jesus' saving acts, the Last Supper, the cross, the resurrection. None of these make sense without the Exodus. And these passages of freedom are so powerful, so dangerous, that in the face of the institution of slavery. In his book called The Talking Book, Alan Dwight Callahan says this, that African slaves and their descendants discerned something in the Bible that was neither at the center of their ancestral cultures nor an evidence in their hostile American home, a warrant for justice in this world. They found woven in the text of the Bible a crimson thread of divine justice, antithetical to the injustice they had come to know all too well. A crimson thread of divine justice, a word of hope. Grayson, can we have the next slide? Can we read this together, please, from Exodus 9? Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. And the next one, a passage from Galatians, together. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are one, Christ Jesus. These are dangerous words powerful words, words that change the world, words that have empowered and emboldened and enlivened generations of oppressed people all over the world, throughout history, for those seeking justice and liberation. 
It was these words and many others that were the base of the so-called slave Bibles, which you can read about in your bulletin. There are three such Bibles known to exist, used by missionaries in the early 1800s to teach African slaves how to read and to teach them about Christian religion, but to highlight their submission as slaves. And in order to accomplish that, they had to delete all of the parts of the Bible that might inspire freedom and resistance. So if you can reach a Bible, I want you to find where the Old Testament and the New Testament meet. And if someone does it before I do, the Old Testament goes up to page 839, if that's helpful. I'm going to hold it up like this. So in the slave Bible, 90% of the Old Testament was missing. So you can kind of guess as you're looking of how much might have been left. And then if you can hold a finger there and flip to the New Testament, 50% of that was missing. So that's a little bit easier. You can just slice that in half. This little skinny part in the middle is all that was left. Grayson, can you flip to the next slide? So this is a picture of that Bible that Pat took for us. And then next slide, Grayson. This one. It's a little bit hard to see, but you can see that on this page over here, we have 1 Samuel. And I looked it up to check, and it ends with 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 22. And then on the next page, we start with chapter 3 of 1 Kings. So that means for the book of 1 Samuel, we're missing chapters 25 through 31. We're missing all of 2 Samuel. And we're missing the first two chapters of 1 Kings. Also missing are most of the book of Exodus, all of the Psalms, all of Revelation, the passages that we read together from Galatians, all of them are just gone. Anything that would hint at liberation or freedom or hope or equality or a new heaven and earth. The passages that are present, however, reinforce notions of slavery and submission and obedience. Because this book, this common book that we all have, that we find in drawers in hotel rooms. This book is healing. It's powerful. It's even dangerous. Because these words are living and breathing. Jesus is the word incarnate, the word of God made flesh, and our understanding filters through what we know of Jesus. And there's a reason why you can read and hear scripture over and over again and find something new each time. We may struggle and not be able to gasp, grasp Jesus' true intention around divorce or how the Apostle Paul fully understood slavery. But at the end of the day, our ways of interpreting Scripture, of placing guidance on our lives and the life of, lives of others, 
must come from a place of love and grace, with an intention to help and to heal and to not inflict greater harm. Jesus is that word of God, the one who came to save us, the one who came to set us free, the one who came to show us God's love for all of us. Amen.